You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 164. This week, I would like to thank everyone who has left a review for this show on iTunes. Even though the iTunes podcasting monopoly is slowly decaying, it is still by far the most popular method of listening to the show, and reviews there help us find new listeners. If you haven't left a review for the podcast on iTunes, or wherever you listen that may also allow reviews, you can really help the show out by leaving one today. I would also like to thank, well, everyone. This is the four-year anniversary of the podcast. The first episode was released four years ago. And without all of you, everyone listening, everyone who has supported the show through donations or Patreon, has followed the show on Facebook or Twitter or sent emails, or just listened, thank you. And hopefully we can continue this thing into the future. For those who may be wondering what the future is... Well, I'll be prepared to answer that question here in a few episodes when we do some more listener questions, so you'll just have to wait. This episode continues our series on the German Spring Offensives of 1918, and after the first two attacks, Michael and Georgette, that targeted the British, their third effort would be in the south. This meant an attack against the French, and it would have the codename Blücher York. This offensive would once again push the Allies to a point of crisis, which would result in further changes to both the command structure at the highest levels and would prompt greater participation from the Americans. It would also be the last German attack that would see any kind of real success, even though they would launch two more before they were done for the war. After the relative failure of Georgette, the Germans wanted to continue the attack, and Ludendorff believed that Flanders was still the decisive theater. But there were now a lot of French and British troops which had shifted north first to meet Michael and then Georgette. Because of the shift, Ludendorff would look south and activate Operation Blücher York, which was once again an attempt to pull reinforcements, this time primarily French reinforcements, back to the south. This was the goal of the attack, at least in theory. But on the German side, there was some disagreement about what Blücher York was actually designed to accomplish. 
Ludendorff seems clear that the attack was simply another step in preparing for the eventual defeat of the British in Flanders. In his post-war accounts, Ludendorff says that the attack was designed to keep the initiative on the German side, to use up more allied forces in general, and to pull those troops south and to finally to get some rest for the German troops in the north so that they could be used for another attack in the future. However, these goals did not precisely translate down the chain of command, and much like with Michael, there was some messaging that this attack was the one that was supposed to win the war, not just another setup for an attack somewhere else. This would all become even more confusing when the attack, as we will discuss here in a bit, became very successful. In my research, I've come out with a sneaking suspicion that Ludendorff may be trying to shape the narrative on Blücher York at least a little bit in his post-war memoirs. I generally can't shake the feeling that, much like Falkenhayn and Verdun, Ludendorff thought that Blücher York might win the war, but when it did not in fact do that, he began to claim that, of course, it was never supposed to. The primary point in this direction is that the attack would be a huge success much larger than any attack afterwards, and the Germans would continue pushing for that success for a little while. So it's hard to see how it could have been just some diversion from the real effort in the north, where there were only exhausted troops to try and attack again, and less of them. But that's just a theory, but one that makes a lot of sense in my mind. Uh, I would need a lot more research to really verify it, though. Back to Blücher York for the moment. One of the biggest reasons that it would be so successful is because the Germans had time to properly prepare. Unlike for Georgette, where they had only had a few days to in play before the attack began but after Michael ended, for Blücher York, the Germans would have almost a month. There was also proper infrastructure to support these preparations, with multiple rail lines running into the area of the attack. The Germans hoped that these gigantic preparations for the attack would offset the other problems that were unavoidable for any army that had been forced to absorb 350,000 casualties in the span of about a month and a half. They also had one more advantage. They would start the attack on the Shemda Dam, and then shift to the area around Noyon, which meant that they would be advancing towards Paris. And for the Germans, nothing felt as good as advancing towards Paris. For the first time in 1918, the French would be the primary target for the German attacks, which was a situation they had been preparing for since 1917. Before 1918 even began, the French believed that there were four operations that the Germans could launch in 1918. An attack on the Western Front, an attack against Italy, an attack against Salonika, and then an attack through Switzerland. Now, the Swiss operation is interesting. They were basically concerned that the Germans would create another Belgium situation only in the south. Then once they were through Swiss territory, the Germans would attack both Italy and France. As far as I know, this was never a real option that the Germans seriously considered. I do find it interesting that the French were so concerned about it, though. While the French could not know exactly what the Germans were going to do, Patan believed that it was critical that the British and French prepare to weather the coming storm as well as possible. This would hopefully allow the Italians to recover from Caporetto and for the Americans to continue to arrive in ever greater numbers. He also, of course, believed that it was critical that the French army improve its defenses. He would also begin pushing for the French to adopt the defense in depth that all of the other armies on the Western Front had already begun using. To this end, he published two different documents to instruct his armies on how to implement these new defensive arrangements, and these were called the Defense Actions of Large Units in Battle and the Simple Directive Number 4. The defenses outlined in these two documents were very similar to what the Germans were doing, and what the British were trying to do. 
and because of this similarity, I won't really describe them here. While this was a smart move, Patan had issues getting his commanders on board. Many of the French generals were very concerned about losing more French territory. Any French territory, really, even if it was just temporary. This meant that Patan would spend months trying to get his generals on board, and never really succeeding. While at times Patan could not force his generals to do some things, what he could do was prepare for the German attack by himself, and that meant pulling a large group of reinforcements, uh, roughly about 39 divisions, into reserve at the start of the year. This reserve gave him the power to react to a German attack, and also gave him the ability to keep other French divisions fully manned by disbanding, disbanding divisions from this reserve to send men to other units. This helped reduce the effects of the French manpower problems in early 1918. Patan was doing good stuff there, but I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture about the French situation. They were having serious manpower problems that were only going to get worse as the year continued. The more pessimistic French estimates said that the French army would have to disband 25 divisions before the end of the year just to keep the other divisions at a reasonable strength. Even with these problems, when the British were attacked, the French were called upon to send divisions north to assist, and they answered that call quite well. By the time that the German attacks on the Chem de Dom were launched during Blücher York, of the 103 divisions that the French had on the Western Front, 45 of them were north of the River Oie. This meant that the majority of the French Front, from about Noyant to Switzerland, was held by just 60 divisions. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, so I have some better numbers here. In terms of density, this meant that from the river to the North Sea, there was British, French, and Belgian divisions, and there was one for every four, point, four or five kilometers of front, and then another division in reserve for every six kilometers of front. To the south, though, all the way to Switzerland, there was one division for every 12 kilometers of front, and then a reserve for every 23. So that's one for every 4.5, with one in reserve for every 6, or one division for every 12 kilometers, and one in reserve for every 23. All of this combined just pointed to the fact that the French were spread very thin, and that most of the reserves that Patan had built up to meet the German attack were now in the north. This also made Patan very concerned, but he did not get much assistance from Foch in, in addressing these concerns. Foch was just as focused on the north as the British were, and on top of this focus he was already planning for offensives. Foch would find support for these plans with many French generals, who even at this point in the war, even after all of the French failures, still believed that the French should continue to launch attacks. Patan, of course, completely disagreed with this belief, a disagreement that would continue basically forever. A critical piece of the German plans was once again based around railways. However, in this case, the railway centers that were going to be captured were not targets in an attempt to rob them from the enemy, but instead they were targets so that they could be used by the Germans themselves. In this case, there were two of these rail centers, at Rheims and Soissons, with, and without these two cities, the Germans would sort of be advancing into a sack, with the two cities at the top of it. If they could capture them, then the sack would spill open, and supplies could be rushed forward on the rails. If they could not be captured, then the German offensive would have to end, due simply to lack of supplies and the inability to expand the base of the salient that the attack would be creating.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The French troops that would bear the brunt of the first German attacks were positioned on the Chem de Dom, and here they would be under the command of General Denis Duchesne. And Duchesne had made some, quite frankly, bad decisions. Back near the end of 1917, Patan had instructed his generals to construct a defense in depth. However, Duchesne was not one of the generals that decided to follow this direction. This objection was based on two primary reasons, at least in his mind. The first was the fact that he believed that it was dangerous to yield ground on the way to Paris, and the second was that it would be demoralizing for the French troops to voluntarily give up any French territory. While you could probably argue that these were actual problems, uh, behind these reasons was really just that good old, old school mindset. It had been proven time and time again that defense in depth was the only way to properly meet a late war attack due to the strength of the artillery involved, but Duchesne just did not want to move in that direction. What this meant for the troops at the front is that they were packed into the frontline trenches with the entire set of defenses, including the artillery, all within five miles of the front. For those of you with good memories, you may remember that this was roughly the distance that the Germans had managed to easily advance during Operation Michael, due to the strength of their artillery, so you may know what's about to happen here. Not only were these positions entirely too close to the front, but they were just poorly positioned. The primary line of resistance was on the crest of the Chem de Dom, rather than behind the ridge, and this was almost as important as the mistake of not implementing a defense in depth, because it allowed the Germans complete an uninterrupted observation of the French positions. This would in turn allow precise and perfect placement of the artillery barrage. All of these arrangements were maintained even after the French had a pretty good idea that the Germans were about to attack in the area, due to information that they gathered from German prisoners. The picture of the German attack would continue to develop in the French intelligence circles in the last few weeks of May, but there was little reaction from the French uh, leaders. The only thing that they did not know was the precise date of the attack, a piece of information that they would not learn until the day before the attack was launched on the night of May the 27th. 
The German infantry attack would begin at 4 a.m., and while most of the 50 German divisions that were involved had also been involved to at least some extent in Michael and Georgette, they had the advantage of greatly outnumbering the British and French defenders. For the defense, the British and French had just 11 divisions in the front lines and 5 in reserve behind, so with 50 divisions attacking just 16, the numerical advantage produced quick results. Near the center of the attack, a wide gap developed between the overwhelmed British 22nd and British 50th divisions, and through this gap, a mass of German troops pushed through. In this area of the front, the Germans reached the Anne River, which represented a roughly 6-kilometer advance, in just 6 hours. In fact, along almost the entirety of the front, the Germans would capture the crest of the Chem de Dom by 9 a.m., and were then on their way down the other side by midday. By midday, there were also areas where the Germans had penetrated over five miles and were across the Anne River completely. Just the fact that the Germans were able to get across the river so quickly represented a massive mistake on the side of the defenders. There were 80 bridges across the river on the front of the attack, and they were critical to getting across the Anne. On the first day of the attack, one of the jobs of the defenders was to blow up the bridges, but none of them would be properly destroyed. Back at headquarters, Duchesne kept moving troops forward without any real idea of where they were going or what they would find when they arrived. The only effect of these movements was to make the second line of defenses even easier to capture, since the troops that were supposed to man them had been sent forward. By the time that night fell over the battlefield, the Germans were moving across the river in good numbers and were even reaching the next river to the west. In an attempt to keep the attack going, the Germans tried going all night, but this proved to be impossible. By the time that the German advance ground to a halt out of sheer exhaustion, the Germans had advanced 12 miles, or 16 kilometers, on a front 25 miles wide, all in just one day. These advances were just as large as the biggest that had happened on March 21st, so things were looking really good. After the successes of the first day, and then continued success on the second, Ludendorff pushed more and more troops forward while trying to keep the attack going. On the second day alone, the Germans would capture 20,000 prisoners, and over the next three days, the advance would continue almost uninterrupted. This situation would cause many French leaders to consider May 30th and June 1st, 1918, as some of the absolute worst of the war. By June 1st, the Germans were over 50 kilometers deep into Allied territory, and they had taken the city of Chateau Thierry. On that same day, Patan would write to Foch and say, Since May 27th, the battle has absorbed 37 divisions, including 5 British. 17 of these divisions are completely exhausted, and of these, 2 or 3 may not be able to be reconstituted. 16 have been engaged for 2, 3, or 4 days. 4 were engaged yesterday. 5 others are arriving or will be engaged between May 31st and June 2nd. While the French were running out of men, everything seemed great on the German side but they were once again hampered by their lack of pursuit capability. They had once again punched a huge hole in the line, but they were having a hard time capitalizing on it. With the French front in such disarray, Patan blamed Foch. Over the previous month, so many troops had been moved from the south to the north that now Patan said that Foch had robbed him of the resources to stop the German attack. For his part, Foch almost immediately ordered two armies to be moved back south, and while these troops were on the move, far more drastic options were being considered by the French leaders. One idea included abandoning all of northern France and placing the new line of resistance on the River Somme. Another less drastic plan involved abandoning smaller but still very large swaths of Belgium and northeast France so that more troops could be brought south to defend Paris. 
Patan even ordered the French commanders in the north to start determining evacuation routes, just in case it became necessary. To say things were looking grim would be an understatement. On June 1st, there was a meeting of the Supreme War Council, and it was apparently quite a lively one with several very important topics discussed. One of these topics was the idea of having the Americans shift some of their shipping from America, and instead of sending an entire set of men and materiel needed for an army, which included a lot of non-combat personnel, they should instead just send infantry, just people that can hold a gun. Pershing initially resisted this idea, but eventually agreed to shift most of the American shipments in June and July to just focus on combat troops. Pershing was concerned that this would reduce the ability of the Americans to operate independently, and he was totally correct, by skipping so many personnel used for logistics and support of the army, uh, the AEF would eventually feel the pain by not having the required men to support the troops at the front. While the French and Americans were scrambling to get things together, the Germans launched several more attacks in the first week of June. Many of these were stopped without too many German gains, but by the time that they had launched their final attacks, the Germans were just 60 kilometers from Paris. As the German troops got closer and closer to Paris, the allure of the city pulled them harder and harder. By the time that the Germans were as close as they were in the first week of June, the lead German divisions would just get orders referring simply to march further, further forward in the direction of Paris. Patan would tell Foch that his troops may not be able to hold the Germans back, and that the situation is therefore quite serious. This was a huge political problem for the French military leadership, and when news of it hit the Chamber of Deputies, there was calls for Foch and Patan's dismissal. Clemenceau would defend them by saying that these soldiers, these great soldiers, have good leaders, great leaders, leaders worthy of them in every respect. While they would both keep their jobs, just the idea that the Chamber of Deputies was discussing possible dismissal of the two highest-ranking military officers in France goes to show how much panic was running through the streets of Paris. Before we move too far forward, we need to talk about the contribution of American troops to the battle in the first days of June. Most of our discussion so far has been wrapped around the number of Americans in Europe, and the fact that there was more arriving every day, but their effect on the other armies in the war was beyond just simple headcount. Here is one French officer who would describe the Americans that arrived at the front. Quote, the spectacle of this magnificent youth from across the sea, these youngsters of 20 years with smooth faces radiating strength and health in their new uniforms had an immense effect. End quote. The 2nd and 3rd American divisions would be the first to arrive at the front to meet the German attack. The first troops to arrive would be a machine gun battalion, which arrived at Shadow Theory late on May the 31st. They were instrumental in halting the initial German attacks, and as more troops arrived in the following days, they would hold the line against repeated German efforts to get the advance moving again. Once the Americans had arrived, they would continue to fight in the areas around Shadow Theory for a week. The most famous of these units would be the Brigade of the Marine Corps, which would fight in Bellow Wood, starting on June the 4th. This confrontation would be etched into the legend of the Marine Corps, with Captain Lloyd Williams providing perhaps the most iconic quote for an American officer during the entire war. When the captain's Marine unit arrived at the front, they found that the French were retreating back from their positions. The French informed the Americans that they should also retreat, to which Williams responded, Retreat! Hell! We just got here. And with that response, Williams would enter the pantheon of U.S. Marines. While the Americans were now arriving in pretty good numbers, the Germans were also at a point where they had to call off their attacks for other reasons. 
The key problem was that the Germans had been unable to capture Rem. If Rem had fallen to the Germans, it is likely that they would have been able to continue the advance because it would have allowed supplies to flow forward, but it remained occupied by the French. By June 3rd, the leading German units had completely outran their supplies, and with more and more enemy troops appearing on the front, the only option was to stop the attack, at least for the moment. So while the Allies were scrambling around, trying to bring as much strength as possible to bear against the Germans, the German advance was getting weaker and weaker, and eventually it had to end. When the attack was officially over, the Germans could add another 100,000 casualties to their 1918 totals. They had inflicted 25,000 casualties, more than that, on the French, British, and Americans, but of course, as we've discussed many times, trades like this were not in the favor of the Germans. The upside was that the German army had once again executed a giant advance, proving that Michael had not been a fluke, and they had also captured a lot of French territory. But it also meant that they now had more front than ever to man and defend, and to accomplish the defense they had fragile supply lines and barely any defenses. Perhaps the smartest move would have been to just abandon the gains, since they were not really important, but this was politically impossible, and probably would have caused some serious morale problems in the army as well. And so the Germans were forced to just do the best that they could in what was in reality an extremely exposed position. To add on to these problems, large units of American soldiers had been involved in fighting for the first time, and they had acquitted themselves well at places like Shadow Theory and Bellow Wood. Next episode, we will dig a bit more into the first combat actions of the Americans, and then discuss the fifth and final German offensive of 1918, and what would turn out to be their last of the war. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week for episode 165.